That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Previously on Finding Brittany Drexel. He wants to snatch them and he wants to have a place to take them. He said he wants to set up a place in the woods. Two years after Brittany Drexel's disappearance, it's 2011, and the girlfriend of a serial rapist comes forward with horrific stories. And scopes some people out. And then when the time is right and nobody's around, he can snatch them and do what he wants for us. Because he says that they mean nothing to him. They're just like a toy in his toy box. Local law enforcement are sure they have their suspect, Raymond Douglas Moody. There's a lot of information in there about his prior criminal history, uh, uh, psychological information, um, and I, uh, I read the file and I said, I said, wow. But the investigation is about to take another direction. When um, they showed up to arrest me, and it was, um, I asked them, you know, like, what was I being charged with or why am I being arrested? And the first thing that they said was, um, murder, human trafficking, and rape, I think is what it was. So I started laughing. Like, I thought it was a joke. We're following breaking news out of Georgetown County right now. You do have the right to remain silent. It involves a man named as a person of interest in the Brittany Drexel case. Anything you say can will be used against you in a court of law. Brittany was 17, a junior at Gates Chilai, when she left without her mom's permission for spring break in Myrtle Beach. Never in my wildest dreams ever thought my child would go missing, but now look where I am. It seemed inconceivable that someone could just virtually vanish walking between two hotels on a very busy strip. The people that did this are still in the community. They're bad people. Do you think you could be responsible for Brittany Drexel's disappearance? I think you're responsible for anybody's disappearance. From the studios of WCIV ABC News 4 in Charleston, South Carolina. I'll give you a story that I don't think has really ever come out. I'm Ann Emerson, and this is Unsolved South Carolina, case file number two. To me, this is a case of that you will remember for the rest of your life, no matter what. Finding Brittany Drexel. Yeah, I'll take you right where the body is, but I feel like you ain't been there anymore, you will never get that body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fact. Thank you so much for letting us come in right now. I mean, that's the first thing I need to say is, um, it is great to meet you both. Introduce yourself, tell me who you are. Tell me what your name is. My name is Joanne Taylor, and I'm Timothy Taylor's mom. You know, when you Google your name, mm -hmm. what's the name that comes up right next to you? Brittany Drexel. Meet the Taylors, Mother Joanne and son Tim. This is their story told to me, my executive producer, Drew Tripp, and our photojournalist, Sam Griswold. On a very cold night in McClellanville, South Carolina, it's just days before Christmas when we are invited to visit the Taylors. We take a winding road north of McClellanville into the South Santee community. 
old back road is lined with tall pine trees and not much else for several miles until we round a curve. Suddenly, we see a small community center, then a couple of churches, and in the waning light, we're suddenly in the Taylor's driveway. It's full of cars in various states of disrepair. The Taylor men love their cars, as you'll soon hear. They're mechanics, and Tim's dad, Sean, runs a wrecker service. We park beside a tall, abandoned brick building. Vines are growing through the broken-out windows. And as we make our way inside Sean and Joanne's home with our camera equipment, there are little white plastic snowmen lining the path to the side door to welcome us. Actually, it's bitterly cold. We've arrived just as the sun is setting. We hustle into the tailor's double wide. Wood panels line the walls. A kitchen table in the center with several chairs. One of the rooms at the far end is noticeably empty. Joanne will tell me why that is a little later. We head into the tailor's living room. Tim and Joanne settle into the couch together with me sitting in a straight back chair across from them. Drew's just off to the side, and the tailor's lawyer, who I've already interviewed, is hanging back, but within earshot. His name is Ryan McCaig, and you'll hear from him as well. I notice there's no Christmas tree to mark this holiday, but I spot an elaborate scene of the baby Jesus in the manger and all the figures of the first Christmas story nestled just under the television. Above the archway of the room to an adjoining study is a plaque that's slightly obscured by a handful of shiny birthday balloons. The sign says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest in every room. I grew up, um, since I can remember myself, uh, I remember being in church. That kind of faith, Joanne says, kept her on course when the troubles seemed unbearable. I was taught at a very young age to believe in, you know, God and a higher power and um, just to have faith. Um, I was taught the word of God and I think that was what got us through all of this. Not think, I know. I know. know. Yeah. Joanne sits with her hands neatly folded in her lap. Tim leans in. He's grown a beard and his thick braids are partially tied back off of his face. He doesn't look like that young boy anymore that was immortalized in a mugshot from 2011. Tim, when you were growing up here, tell me what you like to do. Um, ride bike, play outside, um, help my granddaddy work on cars. Cars, hence the cars all over the Taylor's driveway. My father had a logging company for many years and he would go with my father and experiment. Just anything that was challenging, he loved to do. And um, that was like inspiration for me Myself, because I always kind of, you know, looked at him with the one arm and felt like, you know, he wouldn't be able to do these things. But seeing him do it, he had a lot of motivation, very fun kid. Um, so, yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> That's right. Tim only has one arm. Can you tell me what happened? How, how you lost your arm? Do you mind telling me that story? Um, when I was, I want to say four years old. A uh, car engine fell on me. A car engine. A car engine fell on it? Mm-hmm. His love for cars, <laughs> loved the work, at a very young age, wanted to work on cars. So he had seen his grandfather and father work on cars 
back then, well, for us, where we at, it's common to do mechanical work in the yard. And mm -hmm. so it's this thing called a, what's a horse come along. come along. So he had seen them lift the engine up with it. And he came from school one day and felt like he could put his bike on it, but it had an engine. And when he went to lift his bike up, it released the engine and fell. Tim was four when he lost his arm, but he says his family never let it be a disability. My youngest brother and all of my older cousins always made sure that I was a part of everything. So that even when we played sports, basketball, they taught me how to ride my bike, teach me how to tie my shoe. It was, um, you know, they always made me feel comfortable and that I could have do everything that they could have done. On April 25th, 2009, the night Brittany Drexel disappeared, 16-year-old Tim says he was with his father and members of his family down in Edisto. That's a barrier island south of Charleston, three and a half hours from Myrtle Beach. Tell me about what was going on that weekend. I remember, um, like he said, he do a lot of race, like to work on cars. So that was something that was common for my husband to go to the race, the parades and stuff, because it had bikes and race cars. So I remember that weekend. It was about a good 10 of us, 15, that went. When they returned from Edisto, there was a buzz around their neighborhood. Law enforcement was there, asking questions already, only days after Brittany disappeared. So they literally started talking to your husband a couple of weeks after Brittany Drexel disappeared? Yes, I think like early May, somewhere around there. What were they asking him and who was asking him? I don't know the exact questions, but just, you know, hearing him um, remembering some of the officers coming around saying that they had gotten tips and they were, you know, questioning people just to see what they had heard or what they had seen, if anything. And what did, what did your husband say? Um, I think he just told them no. Um, I wasn't really involved in the conversation and we didn't put too much into it because we didn't expect that it would ever be, you know, this or that they was, you know, implicating us. So we didn't really pay any much attention, just somebody that went missing and, you know, had no idea why they were coming around. Were you concerned? Not at first, it was just, you know, being the people that we were wanting, you know, are, are wanting to help out or, you know, listening having a listening ear of anything that we may have heard or seen, but just didn't put much thought into it. Tim remembers the early days of the search for Brittany, but only vaguely. You know, I heard about it all through, you know, I saw the people came around searching, handing out the flyers, but it never really dawned on me to actually look more into it or to take it that serious, because I figured it was just a young girl that got, went missing and they would find her. Remember that area that Brittany's phone last pinged? Here's Tracy Chinaka from the Myrtle Beach Police Department, one of the first persons looking for Brittany. McClellanville was in that area. So of course, naturally, we went down there to that area with flyers of Brittany, um, you know, asking the local people if they had seen her. Because at that time, you know, we did not know, you know, exactly how she got down there, um, what she was doing down there. So we were knocking on doors saying, hey, we have a young lady missing from Myrtle Beach. Um, have any of you seen her um, in this area? You know, she could be a runaway. We don't know if she's just down here hanging out with some people that she met up in Myrtle Beach, but we're just 
trying to get any information we can about this missing person. And uh, as we're knocking on doors in that area, um, you know, we had a lot of community members um, saying that um, they had heard that um, she may have been in that area. Why would they say that? Uh, I don't know, honestly. Um, unless there were, you know, young females that resembled Brittany that were down in that area at the same time. I can't answer that question. I only know what they told us. And they, a lot of community members told us the same thing. A lot of community members said, yes, I heard that she was down here in this area. And, you know, or I heard, you know, or so-and-so saw her down here. We were getting a lot of information down there that she may have been seen in that area. And this is, this is McClellanville. This isn't just Georgetown. This is McClellanville. Yes, ma'am. And this is exactly, so you're now like trying to figure out, well, gosh, I mean, she's, she's somewhere in McClellanville is pretty much where that takes you, right? Right. And remember back in episode three, we told you about Tim's dad, Sean Taylor. In 2010, he was falsely accused of trying to kidnap another young woman in Myrtle Beach in a case very similar to Brittany's. Sean had a checkered criminal history up to that point. DUI, domestic violence, driving on a suspended license, contempt of court, but never anything like what he was accused of in the case of Randa Massey. Yet somehow, Sean Taylor's photo ended up in front of Massey when police questioned her. Massey said he looked like one of the people who tried to kidnap her, and police quickly arrested him. The proximity to Brittany Drexel wasn't lost on anyone. 20-year-old Randa Massey from Tennessee on vacation with her family was walking in front of the Blue Water Resort on Ocean Boulevard alone. She told police she heard a van creep up behind her when two men jumped out and tried to grab her. It took some time, but Sean was eventually able to prove his innocence through surveillance video. But that wasn't the first time a member of the Taylor family had been accused of something so horrible. In 2001, Sean's brother Randall, Tim's uncle, was one of the five men arrested for the killing of a woman named Shannon McConaughey. McConaughey disappeared after having dinner in North Charleston one night in January 1998. Her car was found burned near McClellanville two weeks later. Her body was found a few miles away a month after that. Three years passed, and then in February 2001, Randall Taylor and four other suspects are arrested. It was like something out of a movie. A man claiming to be an eyewitness had given investigators a couple of different stories about what happened. But police felt they had enough to make their move. Dozens of deputies mobilized all at once in pre-dawn raids across Charleston County. Yet the case, three years in the making, fell apart in only three months. Charges against Randall Taylor and the other four men were dropped in May 2001. The sheriff's office had come up with no physical evidence tying them to the killing. And that eyewitness? Attorneys showed how his statements had been inconsistent and unreliable, eventually getting him to admit he wasn't truthful with detectives about the case. First Randall, then Sean. Soon, you'll hear a frustratingly familiar story about Tim. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Former SLED captain of our criminal investigations, Ken McKenzie, remembers the McConaughey case. They had to drop the char charges against Randall Taylor. And what do you know about that part? Do you know any, were you following up those leads? We, we did follow up uh, the lead on the Shannon McConaughey case. Uh, we had an informant tell us that uh, he actually knew where the gun was that was used in that case. And uh, so we ended up actually going to McClellanville, uh, well, numerous times, but on several occasions, we ended up clearing a uh, one or two acre lot down there looking for the, the weapon used in that in that crime in particular. And uh, those, those charges, I understand they were dropped. Was that why the Taylors were on the radar for something that happened to Drexel? Is that why they were I, at day one looking at the Taylor family? I can only assume that. Uh, you know, when you start looking at... Uh, criminal histories of individuals and maybe individuals' families and all that. I mean, there's, you know, that's probably how that got started. Guilt by association? If that's the reasoning, the cloud of suspicion for the Taylors gets substantially murkier in 2010. It's 15 months since Britney's disappearance. Remember how Sean Taylor, Tim's father, gets caught up in the alleged abduction of another young woman in Myrtle Beach, Randa Massey? A woman visiting from Tennessee claims someone tried to kidnap her at the same area on the strip where Brittany disappeared. Police show her a lineup of potential suspects, and for some reason, Tim's dad is in the lineup. And Randa picks him out as one of the men who tried to snatch her. An arrest warrant was issued on Monday, and this morning when he turned himself in, we were the only ones there. Do you have any comment on the, the charges that you face? Uh, not really. I mean, it's not me, so... Why do you say it's not you? Because I know it's not me. Joanne was on a church youth trip when she got a call about her husband being accused of abducting Massey. I actually was on a trip, and when we came back, my kids and myself, we couldn't get off the bus because somehow they knew when that bus was going to come back, that chartered bus was going to be here. And we had news reporters lined up from the church to my driveway. And I remember um, being escorted here to my home and the news uh, cameras and media following me. Those allegations against Tim's father, Sean Taylor, were totally false, by the way. 
Surveillance cameras from two different businesses in a town half an hour away proved Sean was nowhere near Ocean Boulevard when Massey claims she was nearly kidnapped. He was um, at a McDonald's, in yeah, in Conway. But the damage was done to the Taylors again. Because I remember with my husband, when he was cleared, we actually started calling the news stations and saying, can we get y'all to air the story that he wasn't there, that they found you know, a surveillance tape, and it was never a follow-up story. A year later, it's now 2011, and Tim is 18 years old. Tim makes an admittedly terrible decision. He helps two accomplices rob a McDonald's restaurant in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. A manager is shot twice. Tim drove the getaway car, and they're quickly apprehended. He was the least culpable um, of anybody that was, in, that was involved in that. You know, it was a, it was a stupid mistake, um, but he took responsibility for it, and, uh, and he served his sentence for it. That's Ryan. My name is Ryan McKaig. Uh, I'm an attorney uh, here in Charleston. I represent uh, Timothy Taylor, uh, as well as the, the rest of the Taylor family. By the way, Ryan is the latest in a string of high-profile lawyers to represent Tim and his family. The legal work to help Tim stay out of jail since that robbery could be its own class in criminal justice at Harvard Law. And that's because Tim was sentenced by the state for the McDonald's robbery and years later tried again for the same robbery by the federal government. Why would the feds bother to charge the getaway driver again? You'll see the method in the madness in a moment. By 2015, there still has been no one arrested in the Brittany Drexel case. This is despite that alarming information Angel Valls gave investigators about her boyfriend, the convicted sex offender Raymond Moody in 2011. Moody, who was living close to where Brittany's cell phone was last traced and had already served 20 years for kidnapping and raping young girls in California. But Moody, he's not talking. He said, I'm not going to talk to you. He said, you're smart investigators. You figure it out. Solicitor Jimmy Richardson of the 15th Circuit is responsible for prosecuting criminals in this region of South Carolina for the state. I'll let him tell you how a one-armed young man from the Taylor family hits the radar. The first time that the federal inmate, and I think it was Taquan Brown, came in, he was talking to a prosecutor in Georgetown about a state case. Uh, the prosecutors down there said, uh, okay, um, thank you for your help. We will uh, investigate further. And the inmate, federal inmate said, well, do you want to know information on Brittany Drexel? Well, sure. They offered it up. We took the information and we sent that information, I believe, to the city of Myrtle Beach. Now, Myrtle Beach, SLED, uh, Georgetown Sheriff's Department, and the FBI were all working on it. And that guy was saying that Timothy Taylor had done it. The inmate had offered up information he said incriminated Tim Taylor. He said he knew where she died. There was allegedly physical evidence of her murder. So why didn't Solicitor Richardson take the ball and run with it? I'm never going to uh, take an inmate's word for anything. Here's why. Now, if I can back up the word, if I can, uh, if you tell me, uh, in this case, uh, the inmate had said that she, uh, 
Brittany Drexel was shot on a particular rug in a particular house. So what we had said is, you know, go do DNA on that rug. Hey, there's blood on the rug. That's great, do DNA on the blood. It wasn't Brittany's. So that didn't back up. So we said, you know, we're out. We're not, we're not going to take that. Basically the inmate comes and says, yeah, I saw Brittany Drexel get killed. She was killed on this rug, basically. And you were like, okay, well, once again, I need a lot more evidence go and test that rug and there was nothing to it. There was blood on the rug and uh, the blood had DNA and obviously they checked the DNA but it wasn't Brittany's. In a nutshell, the solicitor did not have what he needed to go after Tim Taylor. That physical evidence did not pan out. But the FBI? The feds appeared to see the case against Tim Taylor differently. Richardson explains a little of the thinking back then. There was another inmate that had come forward uh, in state court after, those are the first two people that had made mention of um, a suspect in the uh, uh, Brittany Drexel case that I am aware of. Uh, and that, that was turned over to the police. So was there other evidence that you're aware of that that would have precipitated a federal Bureau of Investigation search into this? Yeah, the guy had given a lot of information um, uh, about where the body would be, and uh, the police went and tried to track that down. Um, I think that was in Berkeley County. Uh, so they went and they dug where the guy, and again, um, I'm not having to prove everything that the inmate says, but I need something to confirm uh, what he's talking about. And that was, um, he said that her body would be in uh, somewhere in Berkeley County. I didn't go out on the site. Um, I don't remember who did that. It may have been Berkeley County police working. I think Myrtle Beach was there. But, um, you know, obviously from a prosecutor standpoint, I'm here to prosecute. I'm not here, I'll go, but I'm not here to dig up, you know, um, evidence. That is what investigators do. Let's fast forward to June of 2016 to August of 2016 when we start seeing um, a, a heavy federal presence in McClellanville saying, we know she came here, we know she died here, um, and we need the community members to come forward. Very public display. It's June 8, 2016. And the FBI, along with a slew of local, state, and county law enforcement, hold a press conference in McClellanville. A distraught Dawn and Chad Drexel, Brittany's parents, are standing right by them. We need everyone's help to bring something from her home to us. We need your help. We need someone to help us. Seven years. Please help. It's held in front of the McClellanville Town Hall. It's the first major announcement in the investigation. Tensions are high. To some degree, um, this is an expected worst case scenario. We believe she traveled to this area around McClellanville and uh, the North Charleston, South Georgetown area 
and we believe she was killed after that. And we do know that, that, that Brittany was in this community for several days. We think she was held here against her will, at least for a, a portion of the time that she was here. The FBI announces there's a $25,000 reward for information leading them to Brittany's killers. This is not isolated to people you don't know. This can happen to anybody. And the people that did this are still in the community. They're bad people. And we need the help of people that, that have information but may be afraid to come forward. They will get the protection of the federal government and, and we need that help to, to, to solve the case and to bring them to justice. Brittany's mother, Dawn, pleads with the public. We need your help so we can find Brittany's remains and bring her home to lay her to rest and make sure that monsters like this can no longer victimize this community or kill anyone else's child. After the FBI makes its damning announcement, the McClellanville community is aghast down at the local shops. Everybody here knows everybody and uh, something like that never's happening. Within a few weeks, the feds make their move against their new prime suspect in the Drexel case. What was literally the first, like, drop that something was going on. Prior to 2016, um, of them trying to accuse my dad of the attempted kidnapping. So I kind of knew a little bit about it, but I never really actually followed the story, like to see how severe it was or how serious it was until 2016 when um, they showed up to arrest me. Now the feds send agents to Taylor's house, not for Sean, but for Tim. I asked them, you know, like, what was I being charged with or why am I being arrested? And the first thing that they said was um, murder, human trafficking, and rape, I think is what it was. So I started laughing. Like, I thought it was a joke. Tim says he was so stunned, he actually thought the agents were messing with him. It was just, you know, being hilarious, but it was actually a lot of them, and it started like, high-fiving each other, like, yes, yes, we got them. And, you know, it didn't really register to me until we got down to the headquarters. And they started questioning me about the Drexel. Tim says he was down at FBI headquarters for two and a half hours getting questioned. I kept telling them I don't know anything. There's nothing I could tell them. And that's when it all came to reality that they told me that my current charges was basically the charges from 2011 and that the only way I could help myself is if I were to help them pertaining to solving the case. That's when I knew that it was on another level, like it was very serious at that point. Coming up on Finding Brittany Drexel, federal agents tell the judge why they believe Tim Taylor killed Brittany Drexel. Being a getaway driver is a universe away from kidnapping, uh, raping, uh, you know, murdering and feeding a innocent teenage girl to alligators. The world zeroes in. So you were scared that people would harm you or your kids? Yeah, I, we got plenty of death threats, threats of people wanting to take it into their own justice. Unsolved South Carolina Finding Brittany Drexel is a production of WCIV-TV ABC News 4. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help us reach more people by giving us a positive rating and leaving a review. 
For more on the Drexel case, visit abcnews4.com slash Drexel. For show updates and exclusive extras, follow Unsolved South Carolina on social media at Unsolved SC Pod. 